The VR Report Podcast with David Gino. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is David O from The VR Report, and I have Nima Zagami here with us as a guest today. What's up, Nima? Hey, what's going on? Hey, um, I know Nima uh, for, from the SVVR community. It's a strong community of VR enthusiasts in the Silicon virtual reality meetup scene. And Nima had taken this over from um, some of the other founders, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. I want to talk about you know the, the origin story from that and um, talk about more about your background. Nima also is the product lead for Leia. Leia is a tablet that does augmented and VR, well, 3D VR reality uh, with uh, without glasses. So um, without further ado, you can probably do a better introduction than I did. So Nima, go ahead. So my name is Nima. Um, I have been in the immersive technology space for about a decade now, uh, maybe a little over a decade. Um, I My career really started uh, when I was 18. I got a job at Apple uh, at the retail store in the University Village in Seattle. And during that time, I worked on the sales floor and for the business team. And working for the business team, we started working with, uh, we, we obviously worked with a lot of local businesses giving technology solutions. And that really taught me what businesses need, especially small businesses. And I found that the Apple Store, just, there's a lot of things that they could not provide. Um, and because of that, I ended up, I was still in college at the time. Uh, I ended up leaving uh, Apple and starting my own consulting firm and doing consulting with a bunch of small businesses. Uh, during that time, uh, I got a lot of clients, uh, worked with a lot of different types of technologies. And because I was doing consulting, I had a family friend who reached out to me and said, hey, I want to do uh, a VR game. Why don't you tell me about that, right? So obviously, the Oculus Rift Kickstarter had just happened. And uh, everyone was really excited about what the future of VR could hold. So this was, uh, I believe, I guess, 2012. Uh, and then throughout that time, I basically looked into the industry, saw what people were doing. And 2013 is when I delivered like a report to him, which is like, hey, this is what's currently out there. This is what people are doing. Um, these are the opportunities in the space. This is what's missing. This is what people are asking for. Um, here's like a, a template business plan for like, if you want to go forward with this and make your own uh, game studio, this is how you do it, et cetera. So he got pretty stoked about it and then raised some money. And then after that came to me and said, hey, do you want to like be the director of the game? And I was like, that's amazing. Yeah, like I'll, I'll, I'd love to do that. Um, I, uh, hadn't, re I didn't really have any experience doing that before, but I figured, you know, no one's really made VR before. You might as well give it a shot. So I worked with a variety of contractors, um, and employees, uh, over the years and built out a game called Smack It Ball. Uh, while we were working on Smack It Ball, I ended up doing a variety of things in the VR scene. I ended up becoming really, uh, like deep into the Seattle VR scene, uh, helping them, uh, organize events. I ended up creating my own meetup groups that were splinters of the main Seattle VR group. So. I had one called Seattle VR Gamers. Uh, one was called Seattle VR Co-op. That one was more about bringing um, hardware and technologies to a variety of other people in the space, mostly underserved uh, groups, uh, students who couldn't afford uh, to work on this, but they were interested in it in the future. Um, you know, using it for uh, for the elderly, uh, they they want to visit different places and have that be part of their you know interaction time with the world. Um, and then uh, during that time, I also ended up meeting people uh, who worked at Epson on Ruberio. Um, and uh, they, you know, we met, we talked, uh, and they told me, you know, we're looking for people in every, they were like visiting, they weren't like um, local to the space. They were like, we want people uh, in every state to be like a local developer evangelist to like build out the Epson Ruberio platform. 
Um, are you willing to do that? And so I got a contract with them and that helped pay my bills while I was working on Smack It Ball. Uh, because me and the, the founder, we didn't take, uh, take like a salary. We were basically, we were just, uh, we would pay everyone else, but like we just wouldn't take a salary because we were going to get paid off uh, the actual sales of the game. It was like the plan, right? Um, and so, you know, I was doing consulting. I was doing this stuff with Epson and uh, it was pretty great. And then we ran out of money for the game, but the game was almost done. So we put it on early access on Steam and we're like, well, if there's enough traction, we'll be able to, you know, take this and, and go really finish the game and have all the features we wanted. And uh, that didn't happen. So Smack It Ball is still on Steam right now, but it's, uh, it's, you know, it's pretty unfinished. If you want to just rally a ball up against the wall, you can do it in VR. It's, it's great. But uh, besides that, you can't really do much. Um, and then right after that, uh, Epson Muverio popped off and got really popular, which would be good, except it got popular with the drone community because the FAA changed the regulations saying that you can no longer, if you're flying uh, drones, uh, either commercially or personally, you can't have FPV goggles when you're in public because that kills your line of sight to the drone. And they say that you have to have a line of sight when you're flying drones. Um, and so because of that, AR glasses are one of the only things that let you do that. You ha still have direct line of sight, but you also have a video feed of what the camera sees. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. When that popped off, it sold more than 10X in like one month than we had ever sold in the last like four years since it launched. Um, and the next month they were like, yeah, we don't need the developer evangelism program anymore. We, we found our market. Turns out we don't need developers making apps for it. Like we, we're good. Um, so at that point, I you know started looking for jobs. I applied for HTC. I uh, got an offer there uh, for various reasons. I didn't end up uh, taking uh, taking the, the job after I got the offer. Um, I applied to Microsoft. Uh, and then after a while, I kind of just decided to do my own thing for a while. I ended up being a, a bouncer for, um, for about six months. Uh, and I kind of gave up on the whole VR scene. And uh, at a certain point, uh, one of my friends, uh, Renee, she had gotten a job at Within. And she posted... Uh, online being like, hey, like, we're actually looking to hire, we're looking for someone to be, um, you know, like my counterpart at the company. So I, I focus on PC and console, we want someone to focus on mobile. And uh, I hopped at the opportunity, I was like, that sounds awesome. Like, I'd, I'd love to do that. And, you know, interviewing was kind of tough. It was like between me and a guy from Naughty Dog. They probably wanted a guy from Naughty Dog, but he decided to turn down the offer and, and go go back to Naughty Dog. Uh, so I ended up getting the job. And so I was at Within for uh, a year, I was the manager of the Within app for mobile, which included iOS, Android, Gear VR, Oculus Go, uh, Google Daydream, um, uh, Magic Leap, uh, which we never ended up releasing. Uh, they ended up releasing uh, a different app later. Uh, and then the iOS AR kit app, Wonderscope, which I ended up building out throughout that year. I was the product manager on Wonderscope, and it's a augmented reality app for iOS that lets you, uh, these characters and stories will come to life in the real world. And you use your voice to speak the words that are on screen. And the story plays out as you read the story out loud, which for children and education was just absolutely critical. It became part of the curriculum in a lot of schools. Um, we had just incredible reviews, some of the most heartwarming reviews I ever read in my life. Like uh, one, one parent said they had a, a child that was a, uh, a nonverbal autistic uh, child. But when they um, were in Wonderscope, they would, they would speak, they would read. And it, it felt different for them. For some reason, it, it, it hit a different part of their brain versus talking to other people. It was them reading out loud in a book. And they don't like reading a book, but it was, was so engaging that they would read that out loud. And the, the review's still up. If you go into, into Wonderscope on the iOS app store and read the reviews, like 
you'll find that one. It is one of the most heartwarming things I've ever read about something that I worked on. Um, so I was the product manager for it. I also did the haptic design. So the haptic design using the Taptic engine on, on iOS and the SDKs. And, and uh, mainly uh, one of the things that I, I helped design was I designed the architecture of the Unity front end that we use to build the stories for it. So you develop stories that get delivered into the app over the network so people can buy different stories and they'll come into it. And it was called StoryMaker. And I basically designed StoryMaker, all the interactions inside of it, how it would get done, uh, and then uh, you know how it gets packaged and delivered uh, within those constraints. So Wonderscope was great. It won a BAFTA. Uh, I was very excited about that. Um, and then uh, after about a year, I ended up joining uh, Leia, and I've been at Leia for five years now. And I started as the first product manager at the company, and lots of other PMs and senior PMs have come and gone since then. But uh, now I'm, I'm leading the product team, and I'm the director of product at, at Leia. That's cool. Before we jump into Leia, which, which I think is a dope product, anytime you you showcase this at a show or a conference, people are just always blown away. Like, hey, how am I seeing 3D without glasses? This is amazing. So we'll we'll dive into that. But you share you have such a rich history. I want to want to jump back into what I, I know you best for, which is a community builder in XR. So tell me about the early Seattle scene, because I remember the early Seattle scene. I used to work at Leap Motion at the time and I would go visit different meetups. And there was XR Gamer. I wasn't quite sure if that's the, the same one that I remember, but I, I, I do remember. I don't know exactly where I met you, Nima, but you've always just been around and, and that's how we know each other. But tell me about that early time in the Seattle XR scene, because I know Seattle was popping. There was, there was so much excitement, just like the Bay Area. Yep. Yep. You, know, the, you know, Palmer just had his Kickstarter. Um, you know, people were just abuzz about the DK1. T- tell me about those early days and then we'll, we'll kind of ramp up to where you are now. Yeah, I mean, there's some pretty crazy stuff if you look back on it. So, um, you know, obviously Valve is in Bellevue right across the water. And because of their close proximity, they worked closest with the devs in the Seattle community. So, you know, we, we had, and that's probably not super fair in like, in like uh, you know, the, the world of, of uh, the internet and, and shipping and all that kind of stuff. But uh, just being in close access, you could have a lower lower quality concept and valve would be more likely to work with you versus that's something really great and you're like far away and they have to like deal with shipping and all that you probably just wouldn't if you could just come and pick up a a vibe directly from them they'd be like yeah come over be here at two and you can grab your vibe um so that was pretty great but even before that the seattle scene was popping up so before valve even really got into the game um and and there's a few that I'll, i'll actually bring up uh endeavor one which they've made some really uh great apps and content since and you, you can look them up they, they make some pretty popular apps now but one of the first apps was called jump and jump was a game on steam uh, i think it was the first vr game ever on steam actually um and they're based out of seattle uh but in 2014 there was a group called chronos vr which um it didn't really end up going going anywhere but they threw a, a small conference uh in seattle and uh I, I was a speaker at the conference i think i was not not like the keynote but like the Basically, like the keynote was like the CEO of the company who talked about stuff, but I was like the main content speaker. And I was speaking about uh, the real uses of VR, uh, basically, you know, in training, in medical simulation, looking at the research at the time. And this was like in 2014. And I was still like, I guess like 24 at the time or something. Um, and uh, it's actually on YouTube. So you can still go. And it's like kind of like surreal to see how like long ago it was. It's yeah, next year, it'll be 10 years since that that talk. And it's like, you know, available. Um, but uh, it was pretty cool. We were showing off uh, Smackball, and for the first time, we publicly also at the time showed off uh, the six dot version of Smackball. So it was uh, the DK2 had come out, 
and we basically showed off the DK2 with the six cent stem system, if you remember that. So there was a full six dot version of this game that you could play, and no one had experienced six dot VR before. Like that's a like we were many, many, many people's first experience doing six dot, and this is of course, you know, obviously the DK2 has six dot head tracking, right? But six dot controller tracking didn't come for you know to consumers for two years after that, right? So uh, the six cent stem was really like the only way to really do that i mean some people had optic track systems and all that but you know that's not really an accessible way to do it um anyways the scene ended up getting like bigger and bigger and popping off people had so many different apps they were building uh people had different uh, headset demos they were showing off uh, a lot of games in that community like the seattle indie game scene was just amazing i had an office at the, the seattle indies workshop which i believe still exists in a different form but we had this giant warehouse that was in um the industrial district in seattle and it was like it was like two doors down from a strip club, and it was like a block away from like the uh, the, the stadiums down there in Seattle. And um, it was also about uh, a block in the other direction away from the Oculus Rex office. And because of that, we would get uh, you know they would always invite us over, and you know whenever they had parties, it was kind of like it was really it was really awesome. The, the Oculus Rex team they were just such great guys, and. Um, you know, it was a very friendly team. They would have like a party and they'd be like, well, we're having a July 4th party paid for by Facebook. Like, why don't you guys come and drink our, drink our alcohol and, and eat, eat our food and have our cupcakes? And we're like, yeah, that sounds great. And so all of us would come over and we'd talk about our love of VR, show demos and all that kind of stuff. Um, that was a pretty great time. But Seattle VR scene really started popping off when they started doing hackathons. Uh, Tron Nilsson, he is uh, definitely like a legend that space guy has been him uh, and uh, Bridget Swirsky have been kind of um, guiding that community and, and being like the champions of it for, you know, almost the last 10 years. They kind of inherited it from um, uh, a couple of people uh, who, who were kind of running it in the very, very early days, and they've been running it ever since. And um, they started throwing hackathons. And the hackathons, I think, is really when, you know, the, uh, the heat got turned on, you know. Uh, the talent pool just like shot up and and uh, the number of people in the space just like exploded. Um, my team ended up winning. I, I didn't do the first few. Uh, I was kind of didn't realize the value of hackathons like early on, but um, I ended up doing, I want to say in 2017, it was the Seattle Hackathon 4. And uh, my team won community choice. We made this game called Redline, where it was like, we tried to put so many haptics into it. I brought my real motorcycle into the the office and people were sitting on my motorcycle and there's a fan that's blowing and you feel the wind in your face and you're on a vibe. And it's a, a game where you like ride around the motorcycle and you like shoot a gun. And um, people were just like freaking out. They're like, this is the most, oh, oh you, were a, you were a sub pack, right? And uh, I had like sampled the, uh, I sampled the audio of like a, a motorcycle with like a really serious engine. And that's being fed through the sub pack. So you feel the rumble of the motorcycle through your body while sitting on a real motorcycle while like in a headset with wind blowing in your face and you're like going around and shooting and people thought that was amazing so we ended up winning uh that hackathon but i think the hackathons in that space and the creativity is something that i really haven't seen in any other community that i've i've helped uh be a part of so like i said i founded xrla and now i co-organize svvr and while they're both amazing i haven't seen any other meetup where you have people kind of self-organizing and people bringing like top talent and new ideas and new experiences every single month. Like you'd see people being like, oh yeah, I'm working on this like FPS game in VR, check it out. The next month being like, you know, I tried that and there's too many other FPS games. So I have this RPG you should try out now. 
And you're just like, dude, you were like, these are two completely different experiences. It's incredible. This is like so engaging. And then people would meet up and just be like, oh, dude, you've got an RPG. I've got an RPG. Why don't we like jam together and see if we can make a better RPG? And then they start a company and, you know, do their whole thing. It was, it was really magical. And um, I don't know that it's the scene still has that. It might. I know that they've just started doing physical meetups in person again, like two months ago. And I, I heard that that one was really good. Um, but uh, yeah, at the time, I don't really think any other place in the country had uh, Seattle in, in just the quality of like indie developers making content. And SVR was great too, of course. I uh, went to the SVR conference in, uh, I think, 2015, 2016, and 2017. And that's where I met a lot of the kind of core XROGs, I guess, that, you know, still friends with today. And, you know, it, it's like, at first, everyone was kind of like, oh, who are you? Like, you know, you know all of us were kind of like, wary of each other we're like oh what are you doing what are you doing but every you know when you start seeing the same face over and over again you start realizing you're like oh that that guy's for real they're not like you know they're not one of those you know you see people in in certain spaces who just they come in they try to like you know ride the hype wave try to make as much money as they can and they bounce the next hot technology and you know once you've seen someone a few times you start recognizing you're like no that guy knows what they're talking about they're og they've done x y and z i like them and then you know at that point there's just like that bond where it's like we're the true believers of XR. We've been here a long time. And, um, you know, we are always kind of shit testing people. But once people pass the shit test, they're in the family. And they're, they're not going to get out easily. So, yeah. And then XR LA, cool. I, I briefly did it too. When I was at, uh, at Within, uh, ended up basically VRLA ended up shutting down. And so uh, I asked for John Root, his blessing. I was like, look, dude, if you're not doing VRLA anymore, do you care if I do a meetup? He's like, go for it. And so we did XRLA, which kind of, came out of the ashes of VRLA and uh, it was very popular for a while. Uh, I think COVID kind of mostly killed it, but uh, now we've got a guy named uh, Maxime who is uh, building it back up again. It's got a discord and, you know, he's running it now. I'm, I'm kind of just consulting from the back, but SVVR is the, the main thing I spend my time on now um, in the VR community building space. Yeah. You touch on, on so many cool stuff, right? Like people just don't understand like the early days of VR. I mean, it wasn't even that long ago, but Considering that this was a brand new technology, like, wow, this is consumer VR. This is now we're, we're, we're getting closer to the holodeck and you've got different peoples from all walks of life, you know, genius engineers to developers to just science fiction, science fiction buffs to, you know, writers, creatives, you know, it was just this mishmash of like really creative and enthusiastic people around this new technology. And Really, these meetups were really the the hub of all these things. And like you had mentioned, hackathons and, and jam sessions where people got together, they got to actually flex and actually start figuring out what are the use cases for VR? What are, what are the use cases for games in VR or, or enterprise? So it was a really unique time in that space. And I was really happy that you actually brought back SVVR because especially here in the Bay Area, like it's it's such a it's such a mainstay for people who are in the scene. Um, to, to share the same interests. How did that even come about of, of um, Carl passing the baton to you uh, to, and John to, to start it? Like, I don't even know. I don't know about the origin stories of that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to give John uh, most of the credit for this. So like, ultimately, he's the one who's running the show. I'm, I'm just helping out. Um, but it, it was kind of like me pinging Mike and John kind of non-stop throughout the pandemic being like hey guys like we can't let this die like what are we doing let's make this happen let's make this happen so i'm really the one who like my job is just being the cheerleader who just like pushes them because you know everyone needs that little push but but they're the ones who, who make it happen like 
obviously without Mike, we wouldn't have, you know, there'd be no organization the day that we get to the actual space. Like he's the one who checks in everyone, him and him and uh, uh, a for sure. The ones who like, they like are at the door greeting everyone. They're the friendly face being like, okay, you're allowed in, you're allowed in. Uh, without them, it, it couldn't happen at all. And, uh, obviously, Mike did a lot of the, the stuff for like setting up the recordings and the live streams uh, initially when we started getting back into it about a uh, year, year and a half ago is when, when we started, you know, pretty much right after the pandemic, we started doing some small events. Uh, but then John's obviously the one who he let it all happen. He's the one who had that existing relationship uh, with Carl and Nana. I mean, I, I knew them, of course, as well, because, you know, I, we rented booths at SVVR. And so I knew them for a long time and I've been to their events and. Uh, I was I was going to their community and I, I was doing co-organization with Carl um, before the pandemic and before they shut down SVPR. But I wasn't like, um, it definitely wasn't mission critical at that point. I was like, you know, helping out. I was, you know, taking names down. I was greeting people. I was, uh, you know, uh, helping uh, get speakers, helping get, uh, figuring out sponsorship and all that. Like just, just little stuff. They were the ones who had the space. They, they ran the show. Um, but when they weren't able to turn SVVR into like a business and they, they tried for many, many years to figure out how to make the, the monetary part of it make sense. Uh, me and John were the ones who just like really egged him over and over until he relented for like kind of two years. We're just like, dude, the business didn't work, but the community is critical. Like you can't let the community die. Like I, I understand that the business didn't work out and you don't want to do it anymore. That's fine. But the community is so crucial. Like this is one of the biggest VR communities in the entire world. You can't just let this fizzle out. And uh, eventually John was the one who was able to get through and be able to get, you know, kind of the keys to the castle, uh, access the emails, access the domains, access the Twitter account, meetup account, all that kind of stuff. Right. And so once he got that, um, you know, he's the one who kind of runs the show. Uh, and I have been focused on getting us some good speakers. We have some good speakers, uh, next week, speaking of, uh, you said Leap Motion, we're having uh, Chris Wren from Ultra Leap is going to be speaking next week. Uh, and then um, we also have a new from, I believe, also VR. So we have some good speakers who are, are always in the pipeline. Uh, obviously, I had really great speakers uh, last month with, with Tipitat uh, and John from Fluid showing off his new app. And that was pretty great. And I think that's the most important thing with community meetups like this is you want to make sure that you know, not everyone's ready to show off their app. Not everyone's ready to talk about what they're doing, but everyone's ready to be inspired. And if you have some really good topics to kind of jumpstart people's juices, then the conversation after the talks is just premium. It's top tier. People have so many ideas bouncing off each other and getting really jazzed. And they take that back for the rest of the month. And they take that with them when they go work on whatever they want to work on. Um, and I think that's, that's really critical. Without that, there's just you lose so much energy in the space without that, that level of community building. Yeah, totally. Opinion. Totally. And, and give, give me Nima's thoughts. Like what makes a good community for, for VR? Like if let's say you're someone in, in the Midwest and say, Hey man, like this is, this sounds so cool. You know, uh, how do I get involved? Like what advice do you have to give them? Yeah. I mean, there's kind of, um, sort of like three things to think about. So the first one is just like, consistency and execution like i think that people don't understand that like regularity is one of the most important things in any community you just need to be doing a thing regularly for people to show up like you like sometimes it'll take someone seeing the name of a thing three four five six times before they go all right i gotta go go see this you know 
Um, but you need that person because that person is going to tell three more people that they went to this thing or they're going to post about it or they're going to, you know, it, 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 it cascades, right? And it eventually self-selects. Like you might see things explode really big with a bunch of randos that come through and then it gets a lot smaller, but it gets focused and it's only like the kind of core community that's really pushing things forward. And I think it depends on the topic that you're, you're dealing with. But, you know, now that I've been a part of, I guess, like three of kind of the biggest VR communities in the world, uh, Seattle, LA, and, and Silicon Valley, um, I kind of have seen that over and over again, where it's like, you need to make sure there's consistency so that people are coming to something. And that helps elevate and kind of distill into kind of the core group that's going to make moves and make things happen. So that's like the first thing. The second thing is to make sure that you are, that everyone is like 100% comfortable and gets value out of it. So those, those two things are, are really critical. You have to make sure that, you know, you have to know, first off, you should, if you're making a community, you should try to introduce yourself to every single person there. Yes, if the event is 100 or 200 people, you should be trying to meet every single person there even if it's like a massive, massive event. Because if someone does something that makes someone else uncomfortable, it's on you. You are responsible. It's your community. Everything that happens in your community, that's, that is like, it's, it's the community's responsibility. But people don't feel ownership of the community until they've been there for a while. If you're the one running the show, it is on you. You need to take responsibility and make things right and remove problems from the community and make sure everyone feels comfortable because a toxic community is a dead community. Like, let's be real here. Uh, but also adding kind of like the high quality topics to it to ensure that you're cultivating the right kind of community. I think some people are going to come to an event and be like, oh, this VR stuff's kind of cool. Listen to a talk and be like, wow, that was interesting. I'm glad I went to that meetup. VR is not for me and move on. And I think that's good. That still enriches them, even if VR is not for them. But what you want to do is you want to distill the kinds of people who will want to continue coming and grow that community and be a part of it and contribute back to the community. And contributing back to the community can mean a million things, right? It can mean going on the Discord and posting some interesting links. It can mean uh, grabbing the chairs and putting the chairs away after the meetup. It can mean pitching in money uh, for pizza for the next meetup. Or it can mean uh, mentoring someone else uh, as, as a developer and helping them in their journey, whether by letting them borrow some hardware to build on or by answering their Unity questions. There's like a million ways people can give back. But to make people want to give back, they have to be in that place where they're being inspired and they're growing. Uh, and I think the third and most important one is just to make sure people are having fun. And I think there's like a million ways to do that. And uh, one of the, the best ones is just have headsets and games for people to play. People love taking turns and talking to each other and having a little Beat Saber tournament. And, you know, that, that's one of the ways that early on that we would all really uh, connect was just having whatever the this month's newest game is running on a machine and have everyone just like cycle through trying it. And then we would talk and you know, either have some pizza or grab a drink, like while we're, we're chatting about what we think, like, oh, they made this really interesting design choice. It's like, oh, did you hear this is built on a custom engine? They're not using Unity Unreal. And the reason they did that is because of X, Y, and Z. And, you know, really, really cool stuff like that. Um, yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of my, my three kind of pillars to, uh, to building an XR community. I love the XR community in the sense that there's like always like different characters and archetypes. There's always like, like you had mentioned in terms of randos, like there's, there's the seller, like the person that just, you know, wants to get involved selling whatever, whatever thing that they're, they're working on. There's 100%. a person who's, um, you know, trying to get uh, influence and they're trying to, you know, figure out how they can be more prominent in the scene. It becomes very clickish, right? Uh, what, what are other some archetypes you think of that you've seen in these communities that were kind of like, oh, this is that type of person? Yeah, I mean, I think the poser is a huge archetype. 
Like there's just like some people who, you know, they, they're trying to, they try to put off this air that they have like done things they really haven't done. Um, you know, whether that means they're like, oh yeah, man, like my company, like we like, dude, we're, T-Mobile is our, our biggest client and we're doing, doing some really, really cool stuff with them. When really like all they did is they like showed the manager of like a local T-Mobile store. Like, you know what I mean? Or um, someone's like, dude, you don't even understand. Like my game, it's going to break grounds. Like, you know, no one's ever made a game like this and this is going to revolutionize VR forever. And you find it's like, oh, it's just another wave shooter. Like, cool. Like, I think, um, you know, you, you find out who's legit and who's not uh, pretty quickly. So I think the poser is definitely one archetype that I see. There is, uh, on the opposite side of Poser, there's kind of like the, the unaware genius. Like, there's people who I've met who are just students. They're like, oh, I'm just a student. I don't know much about VR. Like, uh, you should check out, like, my, my little, like, demo. And I'll, like, put the headset on. I'll be like, this is, like, the most amazing VR stuff I've ever seen in my life. I'm <laughs> just like, how did, you, how did you do this? The graphics are amazing. They're like, oh, it wasn't that crazy. There was just this research article I read, and I just implemented what they said. And it's just like, dude, well, yeah, you're in school, so you implemented it like research that came out like three months ago and because you're not bound by like corporate politics, you just did it. And this is incredible. Like I've never seen these, this, these visuals on like a standalone headset before or whatever. And so like I've met quite a few unaware genius types. I've also met kind of the unapplied genius type where someone's like clearly just insanely smart, like one of the smartest people I've ever met, but they just like refuse to get a job at like a, a company. Um, they do their own thing. And, and because of that, it, it just kind of feels like they're, uh, I don't want to say wasted potential, but like, you know, VR is complicated and not everyone can do it all by themselves. Like you really need a, a good team to build something great. And so, uh, yeah, I guess the unapplied genius is, is kind of like a, a sad one that I keep seeing. And, you know, I, I think some of them can end up, if they work really hard, they'll, they'll make things happen, but it just takes longer than it could if you, you know, quit whatever else you're doing, got like a three to seven person team and just, focused on one thing um there's also i one one type which i'm i'm i go back and forth about whether i like them or not uh but it's like i, I call them kind of like cyber hippies you <laughs> might know exactly what i'm talking about the people who yeah. are like no man like and sometimes it's cool sometimes it's not but they're i love like, the cyber you're, hippies you're, actually <laughs> they're like you don't understand dude it's like when you put the headset on that is the real way for us to connect our hearts and minds and our souls will be elevated. And we'll, that's, that's the, that's the real singularity, man. And VR is bringing us to it. And I'm just like, that's cool, dude. Like, uh, but you can't, you're like, APK is not working on this headset. Like, like that, that's like the credit. Like, let's get that done first. So then we can talk about the singularity later. You know what I mean? That's so that's so kind cool. of a, the pretty, a pretty common thing. And so some of them I really like, I mean, I feel like uh, some that you wouldn't expect are kind of like that. Like, Dr. Tom Furness just gave a, a keynote at VRTO and he was kind of like that. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I wasn't expecting him. He's like a, kind of an old dude who's just like, this is going to connect our hearts and minds. And I'm like, all right, that's sweet. That's cool. <laughs> I love Tom. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I think um, it, Cyber Hippie is interesting because a lot of them have, you know, technical background, but they also have just like a unique view of what VR does, especially like all the ideas of presence and bringing people together. And I think we need those people. And I think everyone starts out as posers. Like, you know, I was a poser when I first started. Like, but what yeah, are your right. advice for right. posers to like, you know, be more involved in the community and, and to kind of elevate themselves and also give back? What are, what are some recommendations? I mean, the critical thing for everyone, it doesn't matter whether you're a poser or you're a real or like whatever. I, I, I give the, um, I give the exact same advice, build something, build stuff. Building stuff is like the only thing that, um, uh, kind of set like separates the cream from the crop right um 
I've uh, I've met. I mean, there's a there's one guy um, that I who like reached out when I was doing XRLA, and he was like, "Hey, man, I work as an accountant, and I love VR more than anything. I've never, you know, I, I thought I liked my life. I thought I loved my 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 job, and you know, when I found VR, I realized that like, no, this is what I'm meant to do. Um, how do I do this? Like, I want a job in this place. How do I make this happen? And of course, I, I give him the the pragmatic advice, which is like, well, dude, if you want to like make money, make a living, like. XR is probably not for you. Like it's uh, it's hard for a lot of people to make money in this space. And there are easier ways to make money with the same skills. But uh, if you really want to do this, what you should do is focus your time while you still have your job. Go build something really cool in VR. Build something super cool, release it. And then after that, go apply for jobs. I almost guarantee you, as long as you build something that's like halfway decent, um, you'll get the job. And you know what? I was I was totally right. It's obviously he did all the work, right? He's the one who went and 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 took the advice and built something really cool. But he, he made a game, he put it on Steam, and then he got himself a job at Magic Leap, and uh, he's been there ever since. And I, I was really really happy for him. He kind of proved that um, that's all it takes. All it takes is is drive and a vision, and you have to just show that you can do it. You don't need to have a computer science degree. You don't need to have a game design doctorate. You don't need to have any of that. What you need to have is you have to have the drive to build something cool. Uh, I would say that, you know, smack it ball, that, that was my foot in the door. I didn't realize it at the time. I thought that I was going to own this awesome VR game studio. It was going to be super great. But, you know, working on a game, that it, it did come out and, you know, it works. It's, it's not a great game if we didn't really finish it. Uh, but that's the reason I got all the, the jobs after that is people are like, oh, you like built a VR game. That's, that's all that matters. Like it's, the VR game's there. It's on Steam. People reviewed it. Like, yeah, like you built a thing. It looked Looks pretty cool. Graphics look awesome. Great. Like that's uh, you clearly know what you're doing. Uh, go do the next thing. So then you build the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and then that's how it all goes. You just build cool things until you die. <laughs> that's great advice. I think that's really the heart of XR communities is that builders got to build. You know, build stuff, show stuff, get key feedback, get better, um, network, and you know, SVR is like a pinnacle of that. I'll, I'll, I'll attend and. I'll rub shoulders with people that I used to work with at Samsung that are leading the charge over there with a lot of XR opportunities. I'll run into my friends from Apple. Uh, and then I'll work with like indie developers or cyber hippies that want to invite me to their drum circle in, in VR chat. And I'm like, I'm totally yeah. down, right? Yeah, it's like the best. Yeah, totally. And you know, no one's putting on airs. It's just people like who really love XR and they want to show off what they've built and get feedback so they can make stuff better. In terms of what you're trying to do with SVVR, what's up with the conference, man? Because that was really the driving force <laughs> of SVVR. When's the next conference? Are you guys planning one? Is is that too much of a a a, 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 a high mountain to climb? Like what what's going on there? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, straight up, it's it's something to to make it very simple. We would love to do one. We would love nothing more than to be the kind of like official community conference of the VR community around the world. That's what we would love to do. The fact is conferences in general lose money. Like a lot of conferences, like people don't know this because a lot of conferences are actually like run by companies who are running it as a loss leader, right? Like they, they know that it's going to lose the money uh, for the conference itself. But what it's going to do is, for example, they'll, they're going to have their, like a lot of devs are going to build for them. So the apps the devs build are going to make the money back across the next year. Or, um, you know, uh, they get lots and lots of sponsors and the sponsors end up paying for most of the conference. And even with the sponsors, uh, the reason SVR stopped doing conferences is the last two conferences lost money. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know how, how, how public that was, but 
Yeah, the last two that they physically did, like the, the, the second from last that lost a little bit of money, and the last one lost a lot of money. And that's like part of the reason why like SVR had like a slow decline as a business. Um, me and John have thought about like, what are the ways we could do it that would make it work? Like we thought about maybe having it be like an unconference uh, type thing, which would be like, if we could find, we're currently doing a lot of um, our events at the UC Santa, Santa Cruz satellite campus. Um, which is a dope like, spot. Well, we'll, you, it, yeah, yeah. Those who haven't really checked it out, it's a cool campus. It's the heart of Silicon Valley. It's super easy to get to. It's 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 really cool. Yeah, but one of the things we're thinking about is like, well, what if we had like a conference that was in like a school building over a weekend, like two days, and we just had different talks in different rooms, and there's just like a bunch of different tracks, and you know, we would have to limit it to like 500 to a thousand people. Like, it wouldn't be a very big conference; it'd be pretty small, but. Um, that would be kind of the scale that we think we could maybe execute in the next year or two. Um, but you, even that one's kind of, kind of hard. What we've been doing is we've been piggybacking off of other conferences. So we threw events alongside GDC. We threw events alongside AWE. We are already planning to try to throw one alongside the next AWE, which is going to be in Long Beach. So SVVR is going to be going south for the first time. So we'll see, we'll see how that, that works out. But, um, you know, uh, I think that it's just really important that there is a community voice and a community group that meets up together and kind of does exactly what you say, kind of like crosses the boundaries of the different corporations, right? It allows people to talk and just be part of the community without being like, well, I'll have, you know, my PM will email your PM. You know what I mean? We got to, we got to get past that. We got to get, uh, you know, people really talking, building, building those bridges. And, uh, right now there isn't that, right? There used to be kind of a few. AWE is kind of a, a pretty good replacement for that. But, you know, Oculus Connect, even though it was uh, controlled by, by Facebook after the first one, I think, um, it was still kind of what we sort of considered, uh, the, like, a, that's where the community would do things. SUVR, of course, was kind of the neutral one. Uh, but there needs to be more. Like, like these, we need to have regular meetups. Communities need to build bridges. There needs to be like a network of them across the world. And, you know, the the users have a voice and the builders should have a voice. And those voices should go further than they would by themselves. Um, and I don't think, I think obviously the big companies in the space are doing great things. Don't get me wrong. I just don't think they should be the ones that dictate how things work. Uh, totally. And I think yeah, that, it, yeah. 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 I just think it's like, it's, uh, it's just critical for us to kind of find out where does, where does that work and where can we, build that connection. Uh, and it might be a conference. It might be uh, kind of a global uh, discord or something like that, or it might be something else entirely. We haven't figured it out yet, but just know that we are thinking about it. And we're discussing. It's coming. You heard it here first. Yes. VVR is going to be a full blown conference coming your way. Oh man. I think you cut out a little bit there. Are you still with me? I'm here. Can you hear me? You still with me, Nima? Perfect. Yeah, I can. I don't, yeah, I don't know it, if, uh, it cut, I don't know. It cut we'll, off, we'll fix cut off for post. me for a second right there. <laughs> Whatever. But, yeah. All good. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll manage. Um, so, yeah, you touched on a lot of good things in terms of what makes a strong XR mm -hmm. community. Um, you've been in the space for a while. Like, I always wanted to ask you, why didn't Epson make that happen? Because the Mavorio glasses, a lot of companies, like even when I worked at Meta, the, the original Meta, it was an AR headset company. We actually used the Mavorio, the Epson as kind of like a launch pad. Oh, okay, you're cutting off. Okay, let me see if, okay, how, how am I sounding? It's okay. Are, are you on Wi-Fi? 
Are you on Wi-Fi? You're cutting out. Are, are you on Wi-Fi? I think I lost you. Okay, I think it might be it. We'll just let it let it sink a little bit, um, catch up. Uh, Nima's browser is preventing recording. Okay, Nima, can you refresh your page on your web browser? Nima, you still with me? Nima, hey, hey, um, <clears throat> yo, hey man, you there? yeah, are you using um, are you using Chrome? Or, or, I am using Chrome, yeah. Oh, okay. It's, it's on my side, River, Riverside gives like warnings. They go, oh, uh, Nima needs to use a supported browser. So just so want to know. I think, what, I think what happened was I, I'm on Chrome. I think Chrome freaked out because my laptop battery was low. Oh, okay. uh, I, was using, I was using a charger, which the charger usually lets me use the, the laptop and charge at the same time. But it looks like because it's doing the video recording and all that, it's burning the battery way more. So Oof. I swapped chargers, and now it seems like it's working fine. So dope. All right, cool, man. Um, Let's we'll talk back into it, I guess. All right, cool, cool. What, I mean, where do we end on? I forgot. Uh, we were talking. We were about, talking about SVVR. Doing? I talked about uh-huh. the the benefit of uh, whether we're going to do the the conference or not. What the issues are with doing a right. conference and how to okay. bring the community together. I kind of was rambling cool. at the end. So, <laughs> well, we'll fix it in post. Nobody cares. <laughs> all right, good. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right, let's let's uh, jump back in. Um, let me just start up with asking another question. Oh, Epson. That's what I was asking. Like, um, I'll just start over and then we'll figure it all out. Um, that was really cool what you're discussing about the community. But one question I wanted to ask you to switch topics was about Epson. Epson Moverio, like, they, they were very unique in the sense that they're consumer grade AR glasses. Uh, I worked at the original Meta, um, where we actually took that as a launching pad and, and actually built a a platform based off Messen and Epson, and we also built our own headset. Why do you think it didn't pop off? I mean, I, I guess you you did mention that it found product market fit with drones, but why didn't they explore that further? And do you know what's happening with them now? Yeah, um, so that, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think there's a variety of reasons why it it didn't get as big as it could be. I think one of them is just Epson as a company. Like, I don't think that they. Uh, they wanted it to be a really big consumer play. I also, I also kind of challenged the fact that they they were good for consumers, but I don't think that was what they ever tried to do. And I also don't know that that's like what they wanted to push it into. For them, it is a it was originally like an R and D line item that ended up turning into a product line. And they've made. I, I mean, I could be wrong, but I literally could not think in my head of another company that has made more models of AR headsets than us to this day. They've had like, I think, like eight or 10 unique, completely unique models with like different chipsets, different features. And they're all in the, the Muverio line. There's like the original BT100, the 200. I, I started when the 200 was around and then I was there for the launch of the 300. And I helped, um, I, I basically uh, pushed for, for a few features in the 300 headset. Uh, and then now they have like, I think the, uh, the BT40, 40C, um, they have like head mounted uh, enterprise ones. They have, uh, ones that just plug in over USB-C, kind of like an X-Real. Uh, they have ones that have the dedicated compute unit like they had in the past. Um, I think the form factor is pretty good. In fact, I think that uh, Qualcomm is kind of aping their design with with Snapdragon Spaces in, in some way. Um, I think there's a lot of pros and cons to it. It's very weird because when they were first coming out, everyone was like, these are way too expensive. Like, these are great products, but I'm not going to pay $600 for an AR headset. I'm not going to pay $600 for anything this is crazy like why would i do that and obviously now yeah you're laughing because it's funny because it's like 
dude, these are like the cheapest devices that have ever been made in the market. I think that some people are, have always been against the idea of like TV glasses. And by that, I mean anything with like a low field of view is just like that mirrors displays primarily is just not useful or interesting to people. And I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think there's a lot of value um, that you can, like, there are a few different things you can use for uh, AR and VR devices for, and immersion and entertainment are only like a very small part of that. I think when it comes to what it's going to be used in business, there's like a lot of things that you can use them for. But like one really critical one is just like data delivery. Like you need your people on the field to get information. And there's a lot of things you can do with even a small FOV. Number one, send them a text message to their eyes. Their hands are full. They're doing something. They're operating machinery. Send text to their eyes. Very mission critical. Or two, you need them to be able to see what the next waypoint that they have to move to is. Okay, you have a small field of view. doesn't matter. You put a pixel or an arrow at the edge of their vision that tells them to turn their head. And then once the, that is within their field of view, boom, you put a big arrow on top of it so they know where to, where to uh, walk to. Um, there's also things like uh, validation. So if you're at a construction site, AR headsets have cameras on them. The ability to like walk through a construction site and validate and, and have that being captured in real time to validate like, okay, this work was done on this day and we have a record of it and be able to go back and, and show your client after, uh, after the fact. There's like 1 million use cases that you don't need a 100 FOV headset to do. And I don't think people really understood that. And I think that that's one of the big things about the industry is that it's driven by a lot of passionate people. And what I've learned about business is it feels like a lot of times to make good money, you have to be dispassionate. You have to be like laser focused on these customers want X. We will deliver X to get Y amount of money. Like that is what we are focused on. If we can get more money, we'll do it. If we can do less work and get more money, we'll do it. But because VR and AR are kind of being built by very passionate people, if they're not personally interested in it, they just don't want to do it. And what people are interested in, and you know, I, me too, like, don't get me wrong. Like I only work on things I'm interested in, but they want very immersive, entertaining, beautiful looking experiences. They don't want to make something that's like unsexy. That's going to like help the business's bottom line and, you know, increase the productivity of their workers, which turns into a, you know, I don't know, $500,000 a year contract with like one client and you can sell that to other clients. Like that's not what people want to do. Um, they, they want to build a game and the game can make them $0 or it can make them millions if it pops off, but they want to, they want to try because that's the game they want to make and they don't care whether people like it or not. They're just following their dreams. I think that's beautiful. It's beautiful. But if you're trying to make money, I don't know, people probably should look at the other solutions. I think that's great advice. I, I've seen this time and time again, where you see developers, they'll, they'll, they're building an indie. They've got a couple of people trying to build something awesome. And the scope is just too much, like building it a, a full scale RPG in VR. That's going to take hundreds of people. And, but the passion is there. And, and, and I, I really do respect that. But in order for that product to be commercialized and people to actually experience it because it's on the store, I think developers and builders need to really think about what's possible in a, in a short amount of time frame with the resources that they have. And then, like you said, find that product market fit. What's the killer thing that's really great about this in an XR experience that I can't do on mobile or wherever else. And I'm going to really focus on that one thing to make it awesome. So that, that was really cool. Now from, from Epson, like, you know, you're, you're now at Leia and, and Leia is this technology, which, you know, has to do with bending light fields and really having an underlying technology with the display 
that allows you to see 3D content, uh, even movies, YouTube videos. You guys even have a social network. You guys are trying to do a lot of things and building up this ecosystem around Leia. You know, touch upon it. I, I know we, didn't, we weren't going to delve deep into Leia, but just kind of give people an understanding of what the technology is, what you do there, and why it's really revolutionary. Yeah, I think we should probably go from like a higher point of view, which is like, why do people care about 3D displays, right? Like 3D TVs didn't really work out and, you know, the 3DS sold like gangbusters, but people argue about whether the 3D display helped with that or not. Um, I think that the core idea is that, number one, all existing 3D was bad, in my opinion. I think the 3DS was actually pretty good, but, but in general, most other 3D was like pretty bad. Um, it had a lot of friction. It didn't have a lot of content. Those are the most critical things. You have to eliminate the friction and the content problem before people can even evaluate whether the technology is good or not, right? If you have lots of friction, it doesn't matter if you're like, I don't know, you have like the, the ultimate foot massage machine that'll give you the best foot massage ever. If you have to like, I don't know, use a command line to turn it on every single time, people aren't going to use it, like period, you know? Um, and I think 3D really had that problem. But then the question is like, okay, let's say you eliminate all that, which we did. Then what? Like, what are the places where it fits in? Well, I think that the problem between mobile and desktops and then XR is that they're just two completely different paradigms. And because of that, you end up with problems where like, if you're porting a game that's meant for PC to a VR headset, you end up with an experience that is limited. Um, you end up getting something that's not as good as something that's built from the ground up for VR. But on the other end, if you make something that's built from the ground up in VR, people keep comparing the amount of content that you built there with the market that's available on PC and like there's not a match there. So one of the things that we keep thinking is it feels like there's a missing link. There is like something kind of in between traditional devices and XR that will help kind of bridge the gap between the two. And so what we've done with our products is the idea is it not only is backwards compatible with 2D, so you can just run standard 2D on it. You can also up-convert existing 2D media, whether it's uh, photos and videos, which we can do in real time, or games and other software you can do with a simple SDK, up-convert them to be fully immersive 3D. But you can also take VR content and then down-convert it to the display. That either means previewing what's going on in VR that your friends are playing in 3D, or whether that means taking a 360 or VR 180 photo or video and playing that on the display or taking or doing like live mirroring or having a, uh, a version of a game like VR chat, for example, being able to play that in 3D on a tablet when you don't want to go put the headset on. Uh, because there are going to be lots of times where people just don't want to put a headset on, right? Uh, if someone is wearing makeup, they might not want to put a headset on. If they have product in their hair, they might not want to put a headset on. If they think that the the demo that is being given at this conference is pretty gross and they don't like the hygiene practices, they might not want to put a headset on. If the headset, uh, the only headset available is a uh, headset that's designed with a custom IPD, which is a huge mismatch with what their IPD is, they might not want to put the headset on. There's all of these different situations where headset's just not the right choice. And we think that uh, in those cases, our device is definitely better than no headset at all. It is definitely better uh, than what you get with a 2D device as well. So it's kind of like in lots of cases, this is clearly better than the 2D device. And in some cases, it's even better than the headset. Not because the headset's not an immersive, amazing experience, but because either 
one, people just don't want to wear the headset, or two, the headset available is not as sharp as what we can deliver on our display. So there's kind of like the, the multiple factors. And there's that kind of uh, bridges the gap there. In addition, we also capture content and convert content. And using our software and our hardware, the cameras on the device, you can create content for headsets. It's not like it's uh, one or the other. It's, it's kind of, this is kind of a Swiss Army knife that connects uh, what traditional computing has been doing and what the future of XR computing is going to be. And we think that's, that's pretty critical. Uh, I think that it doesn't really make sense to put on a headset every single time you want to test something in VR. I think it might be cooler if you have a, a laptop with our display. When you hit the play button in Unity or Unreal, boom, you see it in full immersive 3D. You look around, you see what, what's there, and then boom, you go back to developing. You don't have to take the headset, put the headset on, make a change, take the headset off, put it down, et cetera. Um, flexibility and options, I think, are really good because uh, immersion is a spectrum. And we think there's this big gap of immersion where people, the activation energy needed to put the headset on is pretty big, which makes it only useful some of the time. Whereas we think that we can make it so that people are experiencing immersion a lot more of them. Yeah, I agree with that. I think what you guys are doing is really unique in the sense that you're bridging the gap, like you said, between traditional XR headsets and with form factors that people are used to with 2D screens. But there's also a large percentage of people that get the bar factor, like wearing a headset. And, you know, because of motion sickness, motion sickness happens. For those that don't know, when you put on a headset, your brain is telling you, hey, something's amiss here because nothing seems like it's full real life. So did you eat something that you weren't supposed to? Am I supposed to hurl right now? And uh, I think that's another use case that you guys saw. What I think is really cool about your product is that you're able to take existing even movie content and making it 3D through your SDK. Uh, which also supports Unreal and, and Unity. Can you talk about, about that, the technical specs and how that actually happens? Yeah. So we actually have a couple of different SDKs. So the Leia SDK for Unity and Unreal and Android Native, uh, it'll take existing software and make those 3D. So that allows the developer to basically either take their game or software existing experience or arbitrary content within their experience, including media, and then make that uh, display in stereoscopic 3D on our devices. However, we also have our media SDK, which we just released, which is available on more devices than just ours. And that'll allow you to, in real time, convert any photo or video into 3D. And we think that's going to be mission critical for future devices and headsets, um, especially as we're seeing companies like Apple are leaning into 3D video content as a core use case of their product. We think that with our SDK, you're going to be able to take your entire back catalog and back library of video content that you've already shot and up-convert it into 3D. Or you can have your customer in real time take their own media and upconvert it to 3D. So for example, uh, on, on Apple Vision Pro, we might want to release an app where it synchronized your iPhone and boom, your entire iPhone's camera roll is now just in 3D on the Apple Vision Pro. Or you might think to yourself, I'm a small indie movie studio and I want to put my movies on iTunes for people to watch an Apple Vision Pro, but why would they choose my flat 2D movies versus like the 3D movies that uh, Disney's putting out on Disney Plus, right? Well, what if you could run it through our high-end version of the Media SDK and hit our API, our cloud API, which has an entire server farm of video GPUs, and up-convert all of that content into beautiful 3D and deliver that to your customer. And of course, customers can just like flip a toggle. They can switch between 2D and 3D with the, the new Apple spatial video format. So why not? Why not just ensure that all your users have that option when they want it? Um, I think that's pretty beautiful. And of course, the real-time content will work on YouTube. Vimeo, Twitch, Facebook, um, even adult apps work with it. It'll just real-time convert any video stream that, that you want uh, into 3D. And we think that's kind of critical to solve that uh, content problem, like I mentioned earlier. 
Yeah. And you, you touched upon AVP, Apple Vision Pro. What, what do you think about Apple Vision Pro today, considering that you've, you've been around since the early Epson days to where we are now, 600 glasses to now, you know, up to several thousands of dollars just for a dev kit. What do you think about the product? Uh, well, day one buyer right here, uh, as you can see with my, my nice AirPods Max. Um, you know, I, I'm not like people call me an Apple fanboy for obvious reasons. I used to work there. Um, but I think that I just I buy everything like I have one of everything on every platform. I make Android devices for a living, so I can't be that much of an iPhone fanboy, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have Windows computers, my MacBook, the one we're talking uh, talking uh, on right now, actually. This one dual boots Windows and, and Mac OS. And I, I need to have both. Um, and I think it's very interesting to see what Apple's solution uh, to the headset problem is because they're doing it completely differently than everyone else in so many ways. And people keep saying, well, it's just a VR headset with extra steps. It's like, sure, if you want to like eliminate all the context around it and what it does, yeah, it's a VR headset with, with extra steps. Um, unlike the existing standalone headsets, it's not a smartphone on your face. It's a laptop on your face. I think that alone is, is very critical. Beyond that, it's starting off with a resolution that is beyond what like this is going to be many consumers first experience with xr it's beyond what most have ever experienced in their homes you know their target for video if you go read their their design docs their target is 4k resolution per eye hdr 3d at 90 frames per second that is the target they're saying if you're building content if you're building video content that's what your video content should be now, obviously, there's going to be a lot of content that's not that, right? The Disney Plus content is probably going to be 1080p 3D. Um, it's not going to be HDR, right? Uh, but, but other content will be. And I think that's, that's the incredible part. No television on the market today matches those specs at all. There are some that are 4K HDR 120 hertz or 240 hertz, but none of the content you get to that. You can get, at best, usually 4K 24 FPS HDR. This is 4K per eye. That is double the number of pixels with full stereoscopic 3D depth with HDR at 90 frames per second. This is, to me, this is just going to blow everything away as far as getting the average consumer to understand, oh, the reason I'm going to buy a headset is because it's better than what I already have. I don't think that a lot of VR companies have been able to successfully sell people on that. And I don't feel like they're spending enough time finding the niches where that's true, right? So for like 3D sculptors, there should be like an entire branch of Facebook and HTC who's going to all the existing companies that make 3D art apps and going to their customers at conferences, on, on forums, whatever, and being like, look, sculpting in space is a million times easier than using a space mouse or whatever tools you're using, a, a stylus and a Wacom, to do 3D modeling. Like 3D modeling was meant for VR. Same thing with, um, with like bartending. It's like, hey, man, you could spend $5,000 for a three-week bartender school, or you could spend $2,000 on a computer and a Vive to do bartender simulator and then practice it as much as you want. Like, this is a better way to do it. You can try it and learn all the drinks over and over again before spending any time or money or energy on real drinks at all. Uh, like, there are these specific places where VR is clearly better. But regular consumers don't get that. A regular consumer would say, I don't need to 3D sculpt. I don't need to learn how to bartend. I don't need to learn how to work on my car. I don't need the, the wrench app to go do that. I don't need any of that stuff. 
So instead, I think Apple is doing something really unique where it's like, you put it on the first time and you immediately go, this is why I need this. This is better than everything. This is not only does it look better than my TV, but it is a, I can resize this TV in space with just a gesture of my hands and I can put it anywhere. I can put this perfect TV that's better than any TV I've ever seen in my kitchen while I cook. I can put it in the bathroom while I'm using the toilet. I can put it above my bed while I'm sleep before I go to sleep. Like this is such an incredible transformative experience that, you know, people like me have always, I wore my Muverios to bed all the time. Like I would watch Netflix and movies before I went to bed and I had a giant screen on my ceiling and that was a great experience. I loved it. If I explain it to regular people, they're not going to get it. But when Apple does it, people are going to get it because they don't need to wait for that one unique time where they're like, okay, well, now I'm going to go try doing it when I go to bed. They're going to put it on in a store and instantly get it. They're going to say, wow, I, I see this. I get it. I know why I need to save up the money now. Even if they don't buy the first generation, which they won't. To be clear, I don't think the first generation product is going to sell really well. And it doesn't have to. I think what it's going to do is it's going to normalize the fact, the fact that XR devices are the next generation and that everyone eventually is going to buy them. Right now, I don't think the populace is sold on that. I think the populace thinks that due to the metaverse failing, quote unquote, based on all the articles I've read, I think the populace thinks that headsets are just not interesting and that they are a fad that is going to go away and die. Um, but I don't think that's the case. I think that Apple is going to make it clear that consumers want this. They just want it without the friction. They want it to be high quality. And they want it to have the content. Yeah, it's just the early days of the smartphone. People don't realize it. It's like, oh, well, I don't really do email that much because I'm not that demographic or whatever. But once you start seeing the value of, hey, games are actually pretty cool on there and using email on your phone without a keyboard actually makes sense, then it gets adopted and, and it is a dev kit. So it's it's really going to be the catalyst to make all the stuff come come correct. But Going back to what you were mentioning about the resolution of video content, and I think that's where most people are going to be, you know, spending a lot of their engagement in, in the Apple Vision Pro outside of building, because you're supposed to be building with the headset. What, the, what What's about storage, man? Like, you're right. Like, those specs that you just told me, like, how am I going to store all that stuff on the headset? Like, are there going to be external peripherals? Like, you can't really stream that type of content. What, what do you think is going to happen there? Well, I do think you can stream that kind of content. That's, that's actually, when you go on their spatial video docs, they talk about their new um, container format. Uh, and, and that's kind of like one of the big focuses that they had uh, was, hey, um, I, I want to, basically what you do with their tools is they have this like method of encoding existing 3D video into a stream that they use their HLS tools to break it up into a format that can stream, which is the same way they, they do iTunes movies and stuff. So it's the same, it's a very similar process to like how if you wanted to like release a, a movie on iTunes and sell to people, you basically use their command line tools, you would like, you know, have your subtitle track ready, you'd have all your data ready and you'd like package it up and then they would break it up into chunks. Um, I, I do think that uh, it will be difficult if people want to store you know, first off, we don't know what the storage of the headset's going to be, right? But, you know, it's a $3,500 device. I wouldn't be surprised if it just comes with, like, a terabyte, and that's, like, the only skew. It's like, you know, you just get a terabyte for 3500 There's nothing else. I also wouldn't be surprised if they come out with 128 gigs and they make you pay pay more for the, for the rest. But I think that even a single 4K HDR 3D 90 FPS movie, based on some napkin math in my head, 
in a worst case scenario, I would see it being like, uh, it could be up to like 150 gigs if you have an uncompressed Blu-ray quality. But I think it could be a lot less if you were willing to have compression. If you were streaming it, of course, you don't have to sort it at all. Um, the bit rate of that would be pretty high. Um, right now, we in most uh, most systems like Netflix, they uh, stream at a 40 megabit bit rate. Um, uh, iTunes is actually one of the higher ones. They stream at 200 megabits for like 4K HDR content. Uh, and that's usually like, a, I, I guess what I'm saying is you could expect it to go up to 400 megabits for 3D because it's like you just double the, the 4K stream. Assuming the frame rate's not going to jump up from 24 to 90 or something, but it might. Um, I think there's ways to do it. I don't know if there's a good solution yet. I do know one of the interesting things, uh, it actually won't be as high as I thought if you use their method because they're not actually encoding each eye. So when we play back SBS content, which is a very common way, uh, you actually have the entire left eye stream and the entire right eye stream. Their spatial video format only records the diffs for the right eye, which means it takes the left eye stream and the right eye stream. It looks at the pixels that are the same and throws out all the pixels that are the same. They only encode the diffs in the right frame, which means that, um, you know, for something like if you have a title card and your title card is like flat and it's just showing like the name of like directed by Christopher Nolan, right? That'll actually be the exact same size as uh, it was in a standard 2D stream because it's just the left eye and there is no diffs in the right in the right channel. So there's just nothing. So it's the exact same size. But then obviously once it's 3D, it's like if you're getting to the point where there's like lots of disparity, there could be up to like 30% added size for 3D. Now, it can't be 100% ever because there's never a situation where you want to show someone something totally different in their left eye and their right eye. That would just be very uncomfortable, right? So I think there's a lot of considerations in there. And there's some interesting things they're doing. Uh, subtitle tracks, they're going to have a depth track that's built in and subtitles are going to dynamically move in and out of, of the, the video based on the depth map uh, for the subtitle track. So basically, subtitles are never going to clip into things in 3D, which is very uncomfortable. I think that's really cool. There's a lot of things they've, they've thought about this. So I think that, as you said, it's going to be really an exploratory platform that developers are going to play with it and learn about. I think they're going to learn about how to deliver video on there. And I think that we'll end up seeing people, you know, maybe changing their habits on how they do things. Like they'll load one video up ahead of time before they watch it and then they'll watch the video, then they'll read it. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see how it goes. That's cool. What, what, are you, what are you most excited about in terms of development? Like right now, I think their approach is really focusing on the existing iOS uh, ecosystem and figuring out how they can actually bring that into their spatial computing paradigm. But what are you most excited now looking at the specs that developers should be like, oh, these are, these are use cases that I think are going to really pop off on the AVP? I think that if you look at what the strength is there, for now, if you are trying to build a pure utility application on AVP, you can build something absolutely incredible using the existing iOS tools. Um, what I mean by that is if you want to build an application that will uh, pull up your recipe, just like a floating window that'll have the recipe that you're cooking, and you just pin it above your stove while you're cooking and have it dynamically capturing what you're cooking as you cook it and end up creating like a 3D photogrammetry model of it over time. Um, 
that's like a pure utility application. Their current tools are incredible for that. They have APIs for each one of those things. It'll get that done. It, there's really nothing there that's like VR specific. It is form factor specific. It's the fact that like, you know, if you're cooking, you want to use both hands and you can do that in an Apple Vision Pro where like, if I want to do it on my iPhone, I have to pull out my iPhone every single time, or I'm going to have to mount my iPhone or my iPad up above the, uh, the, the stove, which is fine, but then it's not going to be able to record. I can only read the recipe. I have to like pop it off to go record it. This one, uh, it, it'll, it'll give you really cool stuff like that. And that's just one example of a million things I can think of that you can do. Uh, people are going to find lots of uses for it in business uh, in the situation where you just like, you know, put it on, go do a task. That task is now recorded. Put it, put it back. And maybe people are going to put the headset back on and view it and use that for training. Are there existing devices that do this? Yes. Is there a single complete unified platform that is going to allow you to have full mixed reality, add the mixed reality apps, record it, play it back, manipulate it, have an object capture API built in? No, there's, there's nothing like that. This is, this is a very unique device in that way. Yeah, I think training videos are, are another killer use case. You just mentioned like training for cooking, build, you know, working on your car. And I think those are things that people don't realize, like, you know, what we've gotten from YouTube, there's a lot of things with like in 2D, you can't see specific angles. Like, am I supposed to do it that way? Like, you know, I'm sure you've done all those follow along YouTube videos where you're just not seeing it from all the different angles to know exactly what you're supposed to be doing. What else in terms of education, like you've, you've worked with within and you, you kind of made story, you reinvented storytelling. Where do you think that's going to happen? What, what, what do you think about education? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a pretty interesting use case as well, is like having um, maybe like AI agents that can talk you through things and can be more engaging. Because people know that what we want from AI agents is information, right? But I, I think we haven't really cracked how do we make that accessible to the most people? How do we make something that like children will want to interact with, right? Like, you can tell children, hey, ChatGPT exists and you can ask them any questions and give you the right answer, right? But what you can't really get them to do is like want to do that. So what if you had like fun little characters who's like your math fairy and the math fairy is going to be like, oh, well, check it out. What you have to do is you have to carry the one and, you know, like be <laughs> all like cool and get, get the kids really engaged. Um, and I think that's pretty cool. I think that to your point about like, being able to visually see exactly what you're supposed to do. Uh, I, I worked on uh, at the first MIT Reality Hackathon that I went to, uh, which I want to say was 2016. My team made this uh, app called Achiever, which was a HoloLens application for the original HoloLens that um, you could use your voice to have a teacher appear that was volumetrically captured and then teach you a skill. The way we did that is we used a occipital structure sensor and like we had a few different people like T-bone pose and we captured them and then we took that model and we ran it through uh, Mixamo and Mixamo had like karate and salsa dancing and all that. And so we had the skills, right? Because they already had those preset animations. So we had, had you learn that. But imagine with today's volumetric capture tech, you can have someone really learn karate and have a karate instructor in their home seeing what they're doing. And Apple Vision Pro is doing hand and skeletal tracking. So you can envision it being like, no, your form is wrong. You need to move your leg a little bit here. Or you can just see the volumetric person there and you can match them one-to-one. -one. Humans have mirror neurons, right? Like in our brains, we have a lot of uh, brain matter is focused on being able to mimic what we see other humans do. It's part of why we learn so well. And so being able to have a volumetric teacher in your space and be able to see them physically, look around them, get that motion parallax, get that stereoscopy, 
the sense of scale really will help us get better at dancing, karate, cooking, whatever is a physical thing that we learn from other people, all those are going to get a million times better with products like this. And I don't think that that's totally unique to Apple Vision Pro, but I think that I can see Apple Vision Pro's target demographic lean into that for like yoga, for example. Hmm, that's cool. This has always been kind of like a time capsule of the history of VR. Give me Nima's predictions for the next five years of what where we see XR and then the next 10 years. And we'll, we'll match up notes in, in, in the times I can. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, I think it's hard to predict. It's always hard to predict where XR is going to go because, you know, the best way to predict the future is to build it, of course. Um, in five years, I am expecting us to uh, hit a critical 100 million mark. Um, That's ambitious. I don't think so. I think it's, it's, it's pretty, um, based on current numbers and growth, I think it's like very viable. I think that we're going to have a few critical products between now and then that's going to get us there. Mm. Um, I think there's going to be some pretty good first and second generation real consumer AR glasses by then. Um, I think that um, standalone headsets are going to get a lot slimmer. I don't know how much the quality is going to improve, but I think if the form factor improves, that's kind of actually all we need. We don't, I think that standalone headsets are actually fine for what they are. I just think they need to be way more comfortable. So I think they're going to get a lot smaller. Um, I think we're going to start seeing a lot Motion more people committed to split rendering and um, remote rendering. So we're going to see more systems come out where you either have a compute puck in your pocket that's doing all the compute for the thing on your face, or it's going to have a box that you plug into your wall and it streams to it, or it's a, it has a subscription that you pay for where over the internet you're getting things streamed to you. I think we're going to start seeing those really start to pop off. We already have a few with Plutosphere. We have uh, people setting up virtual desktop and uh, shadow PC. So like these already do exist, but they're, they're not really popular. I think we'll start seeing those become a more common thing throughout the, the community, like having millions or even like, uh, you know, 10, 20 million people doing that uh, within five years. And then I think that we're going to see a lot more newcomers in this space, a lot more people trying to make headsets. And we'll probably see a few of the bigger players that have been around exit this space. Hmm. So um, there's a chance PS, I, I like PSVR 2 a lot. There is both the chance that it succeeds and becomes a, a very, very big player in the space. It only really needs like one or two heavy hitters that are Half-Life Alex size, which I, I know is easier said than done, but they're PlayStation, you know, like if anyone can do it, it's them. They only really need one or two big hit, uh, big hitters, I think, to, to really uh, change, change things in their favor. Maybe a, a new revision of the headset, like a PSVR 2 Pro or, or a light or a wireless version. Um, so I think they could either pop off or they could exit the space. They could be like, yeah, we tried. We're not going to spend more money on it. We would have to spend a lot more money to make this succeed. Uh, so we're not going to do it. I could see them exit VR entirely. Uh, I could see Nintendo entering the space potentially with something. Um, I could see uh, HTC finally running out of money and fully exiting the space. Um, you know, but maybe things could turn around for them too. Like it's very hard to predict what's going to happen. But I'm seeing like all these possible outcomes within five years. I think within 10 years, though, my, I, my belief about this has been pretty much the same for the last year or two. Um, I believe that within 10 years, most people in most major cities in most developed countries will have an XR device they use regularly. 
whether that's at work, whether that's a personal one at home, whether that's one just for games when they play, you know, a racing sim with their friends. Um, I think uh, the 10 the year mark is really when we see that it's become what I would consider mainstream where, yeah, it's not uh, as accessible as a smartphone is in Africa today. Like everyone in Africa has a smartphone, right? Um, but it is going to be to the point where it is a complete and self-sustaining market. And, you know, most people in most major cities in most developed countries are all using it regularly, if not every single day. I love that. Uh, and I think that's, that's going to be amazing. Yeah. I think your prediction on Nintendo jumping in the space, I mean, they can always just take the switch and incorporate Leia's technology and that would be, that would be a wrap, <laughs> you know, that would be cool. Uh, I, I would love that. <laughs> Nima, it was so fun talking to you. I always love spending time with you, my man, and uh, I'll see you at the next SVVR. Thank you so much. Sounds good. Can't wait to see you there. Oh, wait. Cheers. Uh, before we leave, like, where else can people find you? Uh, any other parting words? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the best place to, to find me is really just um, Twitter. Uh, I'm at Nima Zagami, so it's just my, my full name, N-I-M-A-Z-E-I-G-H-A-M-I. Hopefully, you have that linked on wherever you put this podcast so people can, can just look that up. But uh, yeah, find me on Twitter. Uh, and I think the last thing that I'm going to say is if you're someone who's listening to this, you're definitely someone who is deep in the XR space. Obviously, this is all, all inside baseball. And um if you're already this deep into it, I hope you make something amazing. I hope you change the world with what you make. And uh, I believe in you. That was awesome. Thanks, Nima. Thank you. Bye. Cool, my man. I'm going to just stop it right here. Cheers. Cool. You felt good about everything? Yeah, that was great. I feel like I definitely <laughs> rambled a little bit. My, my answers weren't no, as no, you're rock fine, solid. Dude.